If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, today's episode is not one you're going to want to miss. We are going to be talking about staff retention with my friend, Rob Warrenoff. And I'll share with you, there are many reasons why he and I are going to be talking about staff retention. One of the biggest, though, is that in this very competitive job market, and when I say competitive, I don't mean for the candidates, I mean for us as employers, staff retention has become an even harder puzzle to solve. Yet, you know, retaining staff is more important than ever because when our staff leave prematurely, it impacts our effectiveness, it costs us money, and ultimately it makes it even harder for us to build the organizational culture that we know everyone in our organization, our staff, our board, our volunteers, our clients deserve. And that's why I wanted to bring Rob Warnoff onto the podcast. I met Rob, oh gosh, maybe two, three months ago, and I was struck by his soulful presence. And in that very first conversation, Rob shared with me some of the things that he has done to create cultures that retain staff. Mind you, not tips and tricks to retain staff, but some of the things he's done to create cultures that really retain staff. Now, Rob has held leadership positions in the nonprofit sector for over 30 years. A sample of organizations are ones that you have heard of, the Child Welfare League of America, the American Bar Association, Just Attention International, USC School of Social Work, National Court Appointed Special Advocates, and many, many more. He has served in many roles, but especially in the roles of executive director and development director. And I know a lot of my friends who are listening find themselves in those roles as well. And Rob speaks really well to some of the things that we can be doing in our own jobs. Additionally, Rob provides training and technical assistance to social workers, foster parents, foster youth, attorneys, law enforcement, and others in nearly every state of the union. So I am so incredibly grateful to be able to welcome Rob Warrenoff to the podcast. Hey, Rob, welcome. 
And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So one of the things, in addition to how soulful you are, the very first time we met, I was really struck by how you were such a creative problem solver. And when you and I were talking about staff retention, you shared a unique partnership that you did, not necessarily to retain staff, but to help really support your staff development that resulted in staff retention. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. You know, the whole thing that drives this conversation is my belief that the staff are the most valuable asset any organization has. We have donors. They're obviously important. We have funders. They're important. We have community members we want to serve. They're important. But without the staff, nothing gets done, right? So I always think of my role as a manager as harnessing all of the resources for the organization to make sure that my folks can do the best job that they can do. So part of that is understanding them and where they want to go. Hopefully they're loving the job they're in and they want to come to work every day, but everybody has goals for growth. And so it's really understanding what those goals are and helping them to achieve those. So I think the circumstance you're talking about is when I was in Boston, we had a partnership with a local university where our bachelor's level folks who wanted their master's, particularly MSW's master's of social work degree, the university paid for a third the agency paid for a third. And so the student only had to bear a third of the tuition costs. While they went through school, they could actually still work and they could also do their clinical hours through their work and get supervision for that. So they didn't have to make the choice between quitting their job and going to school. They could do both. And the financial burden was much less to them. They could keep developing their professional skills and experience because credentials are wonderful. Credentials without professional experience, there's a lot of catching up to do. So this was a way that folks could actually do both. And people took advantage of that program and they got their master's and it helped them to rise up to other levels and then eventually go on. And I can think of some who actually now run their own nonprofits very successfully. Part of what I find so interesting about what you have done there is it's sort of revolutionary because social work programs, which I also, by the way, find ironic because every social work program will tell you that they're all about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But social work programs I've often found are kind of stingy about providing any money to their students, but also are known for saying, oh, no, 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 you can't do your internship where you work. You can't get paid for your practicum or your internship. And you really helped at least one school, I guess, break through and go, no, yeah, this is something we have to look at. Yeah, exactly. You know, people go into this profession because they want to help people and make some change in the world. It's not to make a lot of money. And so to set a student behind already, right, financially, going into a field that's not generally going to pay them very well, just doesn't really help anybody. It puts extra strain on them. Maybe they need a second job just to make ends meet. That means that they're not putting all of their you know, energies into the work that we want them to do. And so obviously you saw a lot of benefits that came out of creating that where the employer paid a third, the school paid a third, the student paid a third, and they could keep their job and really as their internship or practicum. But could you share with us what some of those benefits are or were? Sure, because they get real world application immediately, right? So they're learning theoretical you know, underpinnings of the work, the foundations. Those are great, but it's the application of those things, right? So nothing happens in a vacuum. So say they may be working with a young person in a program if they're working directly with kids, say, and a kid may have certain behaviors. Well, their schoolwork is helping them understand, oh yeah, there are patterns to behavior, right? And once I can understand the pattern, then I can understand what the resources are to best help this kid. So they get to then test that out also with their professors at school. 
and say, hey, I have this circumstance at work during the day. This is what I'm going through. I think this theory of what we're studying is really applicable to this. And the professor can then lend their expertise, right? So it's all of this co-learning that is just so rich and usually exciting. And when people are engaged in rich, exciting work, they want to keep doing it, right? And so even though the days could be long, going to school and working at the same time, I did my master's like that. It's grueling. I also look back at that time as one of the happiest, most productive times of my life. And that's what we would hear from some of the students, too, and some of our employees. It's funny you say that. I did my graduate degree part-time over the course of five years while working full-time. And I would actually say four of those years were some of the happiest, most productive. The last year, I was like, okay, this better end soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I sort of had the opposite. I plowed through as quickly as I could, but it was, yeah. (laughs) So as we talk about staff retention, obviously, like, my gut says you were not doing that as the only thing you were doing to support and retain your staff. No, right. You know, it starts with, again, wanting to come to work. We do this work again because we want to make a difference. And so it's tapping into someone's passion. I was brought to this work not through any formal training. My undergraduate degree is a Bachelor of Fine Arts in drama, right? I was an actor. I was an actor who was working on stage at night, so I had my days free to start volunteering. And I started because I was in New York seeing a lot of homeless kids. And that's where I started sort of developing my passion for making sure that young people are not on the street and not left to their own devices, which led me into foster care work. The trajectory makes sense, but that was my passion. And so when I'm interviewing, this is sort of a problem I have with modern day staff recruitment that is so electronic, right? So everybody is making sure their LinkedIn profile and their resume and their cover letter all have these sort of buzz phrases that match nicely with a particular job description. I have to say I'm not a fan, and that could be a my age, but also when I'm interviewing someone, it's part alchemy, right? There's an energy that is never going to come out through, you know, chatbot. It happens in the room and you can see someone's passion and you can hear how they talk. So even if they don't have the technical skills, we can teach those either at work or through education. They can learn those things, but if they have the passion that drives them, everything eventually is going to fall into place. And so we saw when people had an opportunity to work in the right program, So for instance, I've managed organizations where I've had a bunch of different programs. Somebody may apply for one and I'll say, you know, as I'm hearing you talk, I think you may be better suited to this sort of work. And so if there's a position open, so for instance, I had somebody interviewing once for a tobacco cessation program to run that for teens. And it wasn't her necessarily skill set or passion. She just really wanted to work with teens. Her skill set and passions were really around reproductive health. At the time, I happened to be writing a big grant to sort of take over all of Boston's teen pregnancy prevention and sexual reproductive health programming. So I didn't hire her for the tobacco cessation program. And I said, but you're so talented, really. As soon as I get something, I'm going to call you. So as soon as we got this grant to do the teen pregnancy prevention, I called her and I asked her to come back in. And she said, oh, I thought you were just blowing smoke. And I was like, no, no, actually, <laughs> you know, I want to match the talent to the task. She was so successful in that job. It's those want to come to work Monday morning feeling, right? I'm drawn to come in. It's not that, oh God, I have to go back to work. It's I get to go back to work. And there's a lot of components in that. And I'm assuming over the course of this conversation, we'll talk about some of what those components are, right? What are the supports staff need in order to do their jobs well? Rob, you read my mind because that's exactly where I was going. I was just about to ask that very question. What do staff need so that they can do their job well and are planning to stick around? I think first it's a clear understanding about what their job is. 
So at the very first, it's going through the job description and asking them also if they think something's missing. When I'm writing a job description, I write this based on what I think the program should look like. But if somebody comes in with a different set of linguistic skills or lived experience, which I want to talk about as well, lived experience sometimes versus academic credentials, hopefully a lot of times both is the best, but that could inform how the program is designed as long as that's within the parameters of the funder and things like that, right? So it's really making sure that they're very clear from the get-go what's expected of them and what resources the agency has to support them. I really think a lot of people miss the opportunity to have consistent supervision. A lot of times people just say, well, when something comes up, we address it. I'm like, no, no, no. I really think it has to be baked in. I'm committed to that because that's when you hear incrementally if things are working, right? Before things escalate. Because as you said, there's nothing more disruptive than staff turnover, right? It's horrible in every way. So it's helping them understand what the expectations are, what they can bring, accommodating wherever possible, I think. And we don't run organizations that are so big, staff can't have reasonable accommodations. So for example, sometimes that could be a teeny little thing. I had somebody once, I showed him to his desk, his back was facing the door. And he was ex-military and he said, I can't do that. I can't sit with my back to the door. And I went, easy fix. I want you to be comfortable, <laughs> right? To sometimes I had a person that I might have, may have told you this before who had been living with HIV for a very long time. And he was so great at his work, but he was tired. By the Friday, he was exhausted. And I would notice him coming back into work on Monday, not quite rested. So by Wednesday, Thursday, he was really starting to poop out and I could see the drain it was taking on him physically. So I sat down with him and said, I think we need to look at your schedule. And what he could do in four days was more than most people could do in six days without dropping his salary down, right? It's about the quality of the work, not just the punching of the clock, because he needed that extra day to rest. And so Rob, I want us to stop there because first of all, what a really radical thing to say, okay, why don't we have you work less and not drop your salary down? How did you do that in a workplace where there were other people working 40 hours a week? I'm genuinely curious. Sure. We all know that not everyone's productive for eight hours in a day. This guy happened to be. He was also willing to do four 10-hour days. That was a little less physically challenging to him. So that was totally fine. Okay. Um, yep. Okay. So got, got it. So what I was curious about is what did his coworker say if he was working 32? But okay, he was still working 40. He was just doing four 10s. Exactly. But also, you know, we want to create a culture where everybody's in it together, right? It's not, well, they got this and I got this. It's a team. Everyone has a role to play. And if everyone's feeling valued that they don't feel like something's being taken from them, as long as, again, they're reasonable accommodations too. It could be something technical. Sometimes people's backs hurt and they need a standing desk. Sort of an easy thing. I will share with you when I was fresh out of college, you know, most of us when we're fresh out of college, we're not in a job very long. That first job I was at for almost six years. And honestly, it was the flexibility and accommodations and opportunities they gave to me. Because I do remember having been there about a year. And by the way, you know, this is like 30 years ago. And people did not ask for this 30 years ago. And employers did not give this kind of thing 30 years ago. Where I went to an employer and I was like, hey, if I worked four tens, could I take every Wednesday off? And Took them a couple of weeks. They're like, well, let's think about it. You know, can you write up a proposal? Tell us what it's going to look like. You know, explain to us what you're going to do on a Wednesday if there's an emergency and we need you, et cetera. And so I did. But suddenly, like, I had my dream job. I'd work two days and I have a day off. I'd work two days and I have two days off. It was literally my dream job. See, that's great. And that makes you're going to be productive, right? Every minute you're there, you're going to be putting out, which is great as opposed to just running down the clock. That doesn't help. Anybody can sit at a desk for five, eight hour days get the 40 hours and go home, but that's not our industry. 
Yeah. Sorry, I just had to share that story because when you said it, it really hit home with me because I was one of those people. And there were other things they did as well. They gave me a lot of opportunities as well. But there were many reasons why I was there for six years. That was one of them. That's great. You know, another a question sometimes I'll ask people is, what are your best eight hours in the day? People's brains function differently. And they're also their family demands can be different. Some people say, I'm not really firing on all cylinders till 10. So if I can work 10 to 6 or 10 to 6.30, I'm like, fine. I had a single dad once who wanted to get his kids off to school early, but he swam and he wanted to swim first, then get his kid to school, then come into work at like six in the morning so he could be home in the afternoon when his son came home from school. And I went, this is fine to me. This is as long as, again, as long as it fits the job function and with his job, it did. There was a lot of desk work and he could get it done and he can get it done well and didn't have the resentments of, you know, three o'clock. I'm worried about my son. He's in after school care and daycare. I should be home with him. That doesn't help anybody. So I hear a lot of flexibility in the work culture that retains staff. Again, to the extent possible, I think we can. Yeah, there are particular demands that just must be met. But once we meet those, again, making sure they know their job function again, then we can make those accommodations. You know, we'll probably talk about when somebody's not in the right job, or do you want me to sort of jump into an example of that? Oh, sure. Let's move there. Absolutely. Um, So I had someone who worked for me once who had done a lot of direct care work. She eventually got her master's or became a licensed clinical social worker. She was ready to move up to a director level. So I worked with her to promote her to that. I gave her her own program to run. She was overseeing about 12, 14 staff. Sort of the higher up you go, the farther away from the people we served you get. (laughs) And it's a lot more administration, right? Obviously reports and things like that. She wasn't getting that part, even though we would go through the job function of the director level job. So I would get calls from donors saying, you know, she's not calling me back. And I would hear from staff, we're not having supervision. So I sat down and said, can you take me through your day? And a lot of her day was back on the floor. It was a congregate care program. She loved being on the floor with the kids. And I said, I can put you back on the floor. I just have to cut your salary in half. (laughs) Like the most expensive direct care worker we have now, but that's not your job function. So it was going back again, what's the function of a director and are you in the right job? Is this, you know, moving up isn't always the best thing. How did that story end? Did she say, I want to go back on the floor? She didn't. She wanted to make a go of it. So again, knowing what's expected, I'm a big believer in corrective action plans that aren't punitive. This isn't about if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. No, I want you to keep your job. You want you to keep your job. We have the same goal here. So it's building in very clear, achievable set of tasks with benchmarks and helping somebody to prioritize, right? If you have a grant report due and it's a hard due date, working back from that to make sure that that's gonna be ready because if you lose the funding, the program can go away. If you're in the middle of something and a donor calls you, how do you make time to accommodate them because their day is busy as well, they may not have time to call back. So it's really kind of helping people be flexible And again, understanding their tasks. So we had her on a very specific corrective action plan. I also involved our HR department and as well as our uh, personnel director who took her on as a personal mentor-mentee relationship, which was a beautiful relationship. But after all of this, she just learned, I don't want to be a director. I want to work more directly with kids. And I'm like, that's a great thing to know. Oh, it is. Yeah. So one thing I want to explore with you, you said it two or three times in the last few minutes that you believe in corrective action plans that are not punitive. And I'd like to explore that and I'd like to learn more because I think in the vast majority of our minds, we think corrective action plan and by its very nature, it has corrective in it. You're being corrected. 
How do you structure a corrective action plan so that it does not feel punitive? I think at the start, it's sitting down with the person to say, again, you and I have the same goal here. If you want to stay in your job, I want to keep you in your job. So that's our mutual goal. Either I haven't been clear enough about articulating what the job functions of this particular position are. So let me go back and sort of go back to the job description. Let's find out why you came in here. If you think you're in the right job and I think you're in, you could be in the right job and doing better, let's find out what we need to do in the meantime to bridge that gap. So I think it's that approach for one thing, because no one ever does good work if they feel like the ax is going to fall. Putting somebody on probation or something, it just doesn't. Again, our industry is very different from the corporate world where their bottom line, their commodity is money, typically, right? Our commodity is human beings. And we need people to serve people from a human perspective, right? People are complex. I think that's why we have to be flexible. You know, I've run departments up to almost 40 people. I never found it unwieldy. I wasn't personally supervising, right? This was a department I sort of grew. As I kept growing the department to bring on more programs, I would promote other people to managerial positions and sort of coach them on how to manage in my style because I thought I was being successful. It wasn't an ego thing. It's just that I was, and I remember at this agency in Boston, there were 33 directors. That's a big agency, right? Just at the director level, 33 different. And I had among the highest levels of staff retention over a number of years, I think because of these strategies, because I didn't ever go into have anybody feel like they're threatened or I'm looking to get them out. It's not that I haven't terminated people. We all have. There are ways to do it. So a big part of what I hear then is it's more your approach to how you present the corrective action plan and how you implement it, and maybe not as much the actual nuts and bolts of that corrective action plan. Yeah, I mean, it's both. The tasks, again, making sure that they know what is expected of them in that particular role. And sometimes it's even, I'll go back and I'll share the original, if it's grant-funded, go back and share the grant to say, we have an obligation to our funder to make sure we're living up to what we promised we were going to deliver. That's why I brought you into this position, because I believe you're the best person to fulfill those functions that the funder gave us the money to do. So everybody's being very honest and upfront. Nothing alienates a funder more than taking money for X and doing Y with it. They wanted to fund Y, they would have funded Y. So it's making sure that everybody knows what goes into X. So, Rob, I have one final question for you before I want to ask you the off-map question. My final question, let's pretend that you're an executive director somewhere. I know you've been an executive director before, so it's easy to imagine. Small staff, 10, 15 people, and two or three staff members asked to meet with you. And they meet with you and they say, Rob, we're woefully underpaid. Rents are expensive nowadays. It's competitive, but we still can't afford to pay our rent. Like, yeah, we make the same as case managers down the road, but we still can't afford to pay our rent. How are you going to respond and what are you going to do? If it's gotten to the point where they're coming, then they're really serious about it. We know what sort of the market has to bear. And again, people don't go into this business to make a lot of money, but they need to be able to live decently. So, of course, I've been faced with that situation. I was running a transitional housing program for young adults. Some of the kids were working like Home Depot, making more than some of my staff. And so the first thing is to commit to them, you're right, and we're going to do something about it now. So there are a lot of ways to fund the work that we do. We have big federal grants and contracts. Those are huge. We have state grants and contracts. We have private foundation grants. Those are great. Then we do fundraising. And the reason I think fundraising is so important is it gives us that discretionary money. 
that we can use in the immediate for something that we need. So I never think it's either or, you know, fundraising events or write grants. It's a lot of both, because if we've done our job then up front, we can say to them, I'm going to pull some of that discretionary funding and I'm going to add two or three dollars or five dollars an hour or whatever to your pay in the immediate while we're also then doing more long-term fundraising just to build the funding for the program. So that answers your question. It's an ongoing challenge with every organization. It does, but I want to go a little further. Okay, so you say that to the three of them. How do you communicate that more broadly within the organization, or do you just rely on those three to go back and tell their peers, oh, don't worry, Rob's working on it. He's got it. No, no. The first thing I do is go to the board, and I say, this is what we have to do. So let's look at our budget. Let's look at what we have now. There are creative ways. Again, at the beginning of the year, we budget for what we think the year is going to look like. Well, then you may have two or three people leave, and you have a lot of unexpended salary money on a line item, we can reallocate those funds. Or you budgeted a certain amount of travel and then, oh, I don't know, a worldwide pandemic hits and all of a sudden you're not buying plane tickets, right? You reallocate those funds. Yeah. So no, we first go to the board just to make sure that everyone is on board with this and letting them know why. These are not greedy people looking for bonuses. Again, that's not our industry. They're good, hardworking people looking to make a decent wage so they can support themselves and their families and still do good work. So you go to the board and, you know, hopefully you get the board sign off, go, yep, we can use those vacancy savings for salaries. How do you roll that out in a way that you are clear in your communication, but also manage expectations? Yeah, it starts with job function again. So it's not prioritizing one person over another person. It's what is the funding level for this position? And if we have to raise the floor of that, then everybody goes up. Same thing if Say they've been there five years and every year you move up a bit with every performance evaluation that comes with a little bit of increase in salary, you hit the ceiling. How do we get you to the next level? So you start that process again, not that you're just there, right? So it takes away the potential for animosity because it's not arbitrary. It's this is now what a program coordinator makes, or this is now what a program manager makes, or a clinical social worker director. This is the range. Once you're in that range, there's no subjectivity. No one wants to feel like, oh, well, why did she get it? And I didn't get it. I appreciate that. Thank you, Rob. And as we wrap up our discussion today, I've got that off-the-map question for you. It's a question that's completely unrelated to our topic, but something that I think our listeners would be interested to know about you. And Rob, you and I have already talked about this, I know, but my husband and I were fairly early in our foster care journey. So we've done some respite foster care and are hoping to have a more permanent placement later this year. But I know you have had a much, much longer foster care journey than I have. And I'm hoping you might be willing to share a little bit. Yeah, sure. You know, having worked in the field for quite a while, I thought it's time for me to step up and do this myself. So this is when I was in Washington, D.C. with the Child Welfare League. I called up the city, Child Family Services Agency, and said, I want to be licensed as a foster parent and even uh, potentially an adoptive parent. And so I went through the whole process, the home study process, going through it, knowing what the process is professionally and intellectually is very different, as you know, from going through it personally. And a lot of stuff comes up. And when you're writing your stories and your history and about why you want to do this. So I got through the process. I was licensed. I was thrilled. I was ready to go. I owned a home. I had plenty of room. My social worker said, we're going to have a matching event where prospective foster parents can meet and see, you know, kids who are available for adoption. I had told her that I wanted to prioritize a sibling group, two or three kids, hopefully all under the age of eight, maybe between four and eight years old. 
where I was in my life in my early 40s, that seemed right. So I walked into this matching event, which was held at the Kennedy Center. And it was all of these kids, it was holiday time. So the kids are all dressed up in their presents and these little kids are running around. And I see this teenager sitting all by himself. And most of my work in this field has been with teenagers and young adults. So of course I went over to start to talk to him because he didn't feel like he fit in. I don't know how tennis came up. I said, I, you know, what are your hobbies or something? He said, I don't have any. And I said, nothing. He said, oh, I play tennis. And I went, I play tennis. And we started talking about tennis. He's who I ended up fostering <laughs> the first time. We ended up spending a lot of time together, playing a lot of tennis together. He said he wanted to move in with me. So we started doing some, you know, some weekends and overnights and things like that. And he did. And his birthday is actually tomorrow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Friends, in case you missed it, he, Rob just said, that was the first time I fostered. <laughs> so <laughs> Rob has done multiple foster journeys. So I'm also an adoptive parent. Um, there was a, a young woman who I'd worked with in Boston when she was coming through the system. And I knew 20 some years ago, I should have just adopted her when she was a kid, but I was working and she, anyway, I had to go away to DC. And then that work had me traveling a lot around the country, but we stayed in touch for many, many years. And she eventually emancipated from the system. We kept staying in touch. It was sort of a mentor mentee relationship for many years. I sat down with my husband one day and said, you know, everyone has to have a family. And even though she's an adult, she still doesn't have a legal family. So what do you think we make this permanent through an adoption? So ultimately we did. And we finalized an adoption. She's an adult. Actually, her birthday is today. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, she's a grown adult. She's 39. So, and she just finished her MSW. So there's no, there's no time limit on how this goes out, right? How this plays out. You don't have to just foster little kids and then they go off and you never see them again. It's life's a long road. Rob, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the way you move through the world and the way you approach working with people. And that's true, whether it's a colleague, an employee, or a foster child. So, Rob, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And listeners, I will share with you that Rob is actually a hard person to get a hold of. So he does not have a website. He does do some consulting. His consulting focuses on coaching, program development, training, et cetera. So he does do consulting, but I often say this, like, you know, there are these consultants out there that just have no website, but they always stay busy. And Rob is one of those folks. So if you're interested in knowing more about Rob, you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, check out our show notes, and we have put a link to Rob's LinkedIn page. And you can reach out to him directly through LinkedIn. You can also look him up on LinkedIn. It's Rob Warrenoff. But if you see three or four and you're not 100% certain, go over to Successful Nonprofits. Rob, once again, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Dolph. This was really fun. Thanks. My friends, every week, I am just so grateful that you allow me into your week and into your life and into your ears. So thank you so much for that. And I would like to ask a very special favor of you. If you would please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And if you've already done those three things, please share it with someone else who you think would gain real benefit from it. That, my friends, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And here's the disclaimer the lawyers make me say, I am your trusty nonprofit consultant and podcast host, not an accountant or an attorney. That's right. I'm not in disguise as one either. My consulting practice and this show are all about sharing information and helping us all get better at what we do, not dishing out legal, tax, or accounting advice. 
If you've got those kind of professional needs, hit up a local expert. And you know, leave the nonprofit consulting and the podcasting to us.